on, come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorab lives yeah. just outside Limerick City. He likes to talk to his chickens in Persian. Via yeah, yeah, yeah. in Persian means come, you know. <laughs> so I was trying to get them used to something that when I call them, they, they do come. So that has become their call now, you know. <laughs> and they know when I say that, it usually means food. <laughs> This is a story of love, loss and revolution. Two teenagers, Sorab and Gita, smuggled out of Iran, first meet as refugees in Pakistan. When I arrived in Pakistan... I happened to arrive at the same time at this other girl, you know, who was a couple of years younger than me. And um, it's just we happened to arrive at the same time. I I mean, I was travelling on a camel. She had come in the back of a van. We would be in the same circles. We would, uh, you know, be at the same classes and activities. They had arrived in Pakistan on the very same day. But this was anything but love at first sight. But I would say this as my, my initial reaction was that, oh, my God, this person, I don't think I can get on with her at all. You know, I, I kind of, to some extent, I felt that, well, this one we can, we can do without, you know. And I, I even admit to say that I didn't even think she was, she was good looking, you know. I, I didn't even found her attractive, you know. We didn't mix socially, but we would have seen each other on a daily basis. You know, I had no... Um, romantic feelings for him at that stage at all. I had no romantic feelings for anybody at that stage. I was only 17. I really couldn't be thinking of those things. As time went on, Sora began to notice his feelings towards Gita change. It's, it's very hard to say, really. I suppose I'm trying to think back a good a good while back but uh, um, but it was it was really you know it was it was small things you know it was never a big thing you know uh, as I said in in today's society we're kind of sometimes conditioned by movies and series and you know that there has to be some super fantastic event to bring two people together but it actually wasn't that it was to do with very very small things you know that you know accumulated into a, a, a whole Sora Bengita would eventually leave Pakistan. Saurabh arrived in Ireland in 1983. He had no idea where Gita had gone. For ten years he couldn't get that girl out of his head or out of his heart. Then, on his 30th birthday, a fax arrived. It's 1979, Tehran. I ended up in going to a school that was a, a bus ride from where we live. And that bus happened to just pass by the University of Tehran, which all the students were, like you said, coming out and, you know, writing and all the rest of it that goes with that. So often I, I found myself sitting in the bus and then there would be some sort of uh, activity ahead of us or something behind us and then you hear the gunshots, you know, and... When the Shah of Iran was overthrown in 1979, the Islamic Revolution led by the Ayatollah Khomeini 
created a massive upheaval in Iran. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Good evening. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran has been invaded and occupied by Iranian students. The Americans inside have been taken prisoner. It was very easy to get caught in the crossfire, if you like, you know. Now you have a situation that if you're mistaken as someone who might have intentions against the regime, you could be, you could be dead before you actually could say that, look, it was a mistake. <laughs> it, was a, it was a bit of an anarchy, really. There was no rule of law. Um, no one was going to get persecuted for, for killing someone by mistake. You know. For the Baha'i community in Iran, this was the beginning of a terrible period of persecution and terror. Then they went along and tried to uh, confiscate properties from Baha'is. If they had businesses, they closed them down. If they worked for the government, they were fired from their jobs. If they were in university, they were told they can't continue anymore. So a whole series of measures were taken. My parents would have been the first group of Baha'is in Iran to lose their government post, which was almost impossible to lose a government. You couldn't even resign from a government post, uh, let alone be fired from it. And the letter of the um, expel, whatever, the letter, not the resignation, the letter that they were dismissed from their jobs was given to them based on their Baha'i beliefs that they had to leave the job. And they demanded all the money that they were paid for over the years as their salaries. Their pensions were gone. Uh, all their life savings were gone. Um, our house was gone. So we lost everything in a matter of a day. The whole revolution, the, the start of it, when people started going to streets and there was a lot of demonstrations and, and then and these demonstrations often ended up in some sort of violent clashes between the police and the and people. And I suppose it was quite frightening from my point of view at that age, when you're, when you're kind of around that age, you're not exactly sure what's happening, you know. Often Baha'is in Iran who may not have had any... Um, who, were, who may have been, who may be in need of help, were used to find help among the Muslim community, you know, who were happy enough to shelter them, give them, you know, a place to live, etc. I think living in Iran as a Baha'i, you always, you're always conscious of the fact that you're different because you're reminded of it. If they didn't ask me direct questions, I wouldn't say anything. But uh, there were days that the principal or the vice principal or the teachers would question you. And they would, they would uh, freely give out insults about the Baha'i faith. And, um, and then that could turn out, I remember, with my theology teacher in secondary school. We had a four-hour conversation. And my friends were all around me at that stage. And she proceeded to tell me, you know what, Gita? I would be honored to be to kill you because you're a Baha'i and you're a you're an infidel and um, I just looked at her I was I was I think I was a bit in shock as well because I you don't expect a teacher to tell you that you just don't all of a sudden Baha'is found themselves under persecution uh, whilst under the the previous regime they had certain amount of freedom to practice their faith, all of a sudden that all was taken away from them. And if anything, you were, uh, you were under the threat of arrest and, and imprisonment, and, and, and in most we say, extreme cases, some people were also put to death. 
for being members of the Baha'i faith, you know? My cousin would have been 30 when he was murdered. Uh, he had a wife and a one-year-old son. He would have been an influential person in the community. He was a doctor and had served the community for a few years after he had finished his, his education. But because he was active in the Baha'i community, um, he was basically chased for a long time. He was homeless with his family, so they used to stay with us and um, stay with different family members and friends and go from house to house. It was a very difficult life for them. And it was after I left that I heard that he'd been finally arrested and uh, they subsequently executed him quite quickly. As the situation for Baha'is became more and more dangerous, in Tehran, two families in different parts of the city must make a very difficult decision. So, um, so then what you had to do was to find a, an honest smuggler, which is a contradiction in terms. When I think about it, I really... You know, when I think about it now, I really realize, my God, the chances that we took. Because, because this, I remember when my parents decided to leave, for me to leave, this man came to the house. And, um, and he basically explained that this is what he does, this is how he does it, etc., etc. And then, then he said, now you have to pay me. And they had to pay him. At the time, my parents paid... 200,000 Persian toman, which is, I suppose, in those days, I would have said it might have been equivalent to maybe a few hundred pounds back in 1984. It was, it was tough financially, obviously, and we had life savings that we... My, my mother would have had a lot of jewellery that she would have sold and used. Dad would um, get the odd jobs and and then lose them based on his religion again, or for a while, I remember even my dad that uh, drove a taxi. It was basically my parents' life-saving, more or less, you know, so it was a significant um, portion of their future, given that they were getting elderly, and with... So it was, it was, it was a big sacrifice on their part in, in many ways. And, um, and this man then lives with the money, and you hope that he comes back. <laughs> But uh, in this case, he did. <laughs> he did. They had to find a smuggler, give him a huge sum of money, and hand over their daughter to this smuggler to take over, hopefully to the other side, to Pakistan. So that's what happened. I left at the age of 17, um, thinking that I'd never, probably never see my parents again. It was hard. It was very hard leaving my parents. And, um, and so from that point of view, when you think that my parents, I always think about how horrible they must have felt and how helpless they must have felt. She decided to leave 17 years ago. Thank you. So it was difficult. It was very difficult. Thank you. I've often thought about it, and I, when I think of my children, I say, you know, let's hope that I never have to make choices like that. But I don't think I could. You know, as Baha'is, you were not entitled to a passport, you know, so, so therefore it was impossible to leave Iran through legal means. 
We left with my mom. My mom took me um, to Shiraz, which is a southern town in Iran. And I had to say goodbye to my family and my extended family in Tehran. If you had asked me a week before I left Iran uh, what I was going to do the following week, I would have said I probably, you know, I could have told you anything, but I'll be on a camel in the middle of a desert, you know. I think it was about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, the next morning, it was dark, that basically we were handed over to the smugglers and uh, had to say goodbye to my mom and off we went. And the night before, I, I made a tape uh, for my parents, left a message for them. And I suppose it was a hard thing to do. It was a very, very hard thing to do because they were only going to hear it after I left, obviously, you know. I don't remember everything I said, but I do remember I said some prayers on it. And uh, I suppose the one thing I said on it that I, to, to a small extent I regret now was the fact that I said that I didn't want to leave Iran, but I'm going to do it for them. And I think that may have been, may have been hard for them to hear, you know. I didn't mean it as a bad thing, you know, but it may have come across if you're listening to it afterwards. Because as, as bad as things were in Iran, we were so busy with different things, you know. Sometimes you felt that I need to stay and make a stand, if you know what I mean, as a young person particularly, where you're not, you don't see 20 years from now, you only see 20 minutes. So clearly they knew better, because I, I, I'm sitting here today and I'm thankful for the decision that they made. And uh, I suppose, yeah, the last minute to say goodbye was very, very difficult. Very difficult. Because it wasn't just a goodbye itself, it's the implication of, you know, whether you'll ever see each other again, you know. It was a it was a genuine um, step into the unknown for everybody, you know. And uh, I suppose it is, to this day, probably the saddest uh, moment of my life, really. When you're driving at high speed in the middle of desert, if you don't hang on, you'd be overboard in no time, you know. So it was a really hang on for dear life there, you know. It was, a, it was like a game show or something like that, whoever is on after, like, after the journey. So he, he drove for a while and then he stopped. We all got off the truck. Um, it was kind of a, like, something like a little pit, if you like, you know. We, we all went. And he said, you just wait here. And he drove off. For all we know, nobody could come. That could be the end of it. But um, but after a while, after about an hour or so, we began to hear these sounds of bells, you know, which clearly well, the camels had them under their chin, you know, and then four camels arrived. It was a fearful journey, but I think part of it, it I didn't, I didn't feel it was a difficult journey, and I think part of it was the adrenaline going through your body, and part of it the age. If I had been a bit older, I think I'd be a bit more fearful. Um, but it was very difficult. It was very difficult in, in the emotional sense. 
but uh, and all through this I, I keep I forget to tell you that I'm not raging kidney infection you know <laughs> and I normally would have been a fit person because I played soccer and all that so like these would have been no problem to me but I'm now I find everything difficult you know <laughs> everything and of course sitting on a camel and the way the camel walks and the bouncing up and down oh my god after about half an hour I said to a man I said look I'll prefer to walk, you know, can I get off the camel and walk? And then we start again. And then I realized that given that it's sand we're walking on, for every step that the camel takes, I have to take probably four steps to keep up, you know. And in the sand, that's like, you know, impossible. So after about 10 minutes, I could barely see the camels in the, hori- in the, in the, in the, in the horizon. You know, they were just, so I had to say, hold on, I'll get on again, I'll get on again. But anyway, we had nine hours of this, you know. Um, I don't know where we were going, to be honest with you. The only thing I do know is that the, the, the people who were taking us there, we used to ask them, and how far is it to, to, to Pakistan? And they would say, you see that mountain over there? That's it. And then when we get there, it says, how far is it? And you see the next mountain? That's it. And I say, if they had told us it's 20 mountains away, we would have all said, let's go back. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> I again I think I was a bit fortunate because it took me about 24 hours to reach Pakistan to the city the border city and um, present ourselves to the UN close to the dawn it was I suppose about four or five o'clock in the morning where um, they said look we are in Pakistan you know so we had no reason to argue with them it was the same mountain same rocks but according to them it was Pakistan so we were given refugee status once they established that we were from the Baha'i community. And I suppose at that point then the smuggler said goodbye to us and he left. And we were there on our own Then we had to look after everything else after that, you know. I have the fondest memories of Pakistan. I loved, I loved living there. There was freedom, obviously. That was the obvious thing. And we had a very small community. Because we were refugees, we couldn't work and we couldn't really socialize with the the Pakistani community as such. We had the Baha'i community that was very welcoming and supportive. Gita arrived exactly the same time as me through various routes. I mean, I came on a camel. She was, I think, came in a van or something. And But we just happened to arrive at the same time in Pakistan. And But I would say this as my, my initial reaction was that, oh, my God, this person, I don't think I can get on with her at all. You know, I, I kind of, to some extent, I felt that, well, this one we can we can do without, you know. <laughs> and I I even admit to say that I didn't even think she was, she was good looking, you know. I, I didn't even found her attractive, you know. We were acquaintances. I think we were distant friends. We were—I couldn't say we were close friends. We would be in the same circles. We would, you know, be at the same classes and activities. Um, so we would see each other on a daily basis. But I think our focus would have been a bit different. Like I was very serious and I was very studious, and I just had my eye on my books. And uh, Saurabh would have been a bit more well-rounded, I suppose, you know. And he. He had a good social life and he would have been more involved in the activities that had to do with arts and drama and things like that and I I had no interest in those things. <laughs> so we didn't mix socially, but we would have seen each other on a daily basis. Of course we had we had occasions to talk and chat and you know it was it was really that overall thing that I began to see that 
this is a person who cares, this is a person who's talented. No, I had no um, romantic feelings for him at that stage at all. I had no romantic feelings for anybody at that stage. I was only 17. I really couldn't be thinking of those things. I began to see the way she carries herself, the way, you know, her principles, the way, she, you know, she, she behaves, you know, her character. And as I began to know her more and more, I began to, all of a sudden, she was prettier and prettier, you know, and she was, you know, and to the point that all of a sudden she was extremely attractive. And, and I was finding all the qualities in her were coming out and I began to see all these things and it was really becoming, I was becoming quite attracted to her, you know, despite my initial first reaction, you know. I knew Sora had, uh, had a bit of a crush on me. I knew that much. I, he had confided to a friend of mine. And my friend subsequently told me, but um, he never took any initiatives, and I didn't encourage anything. I was only 17. I had no interest in these things. I certainly would have accepted and, and seen that that was a difficult time for everybody. And as I said, throwing another uh, unknown in the middle of all the things that were happening to us at that time wasn't really a wise thing to do. So, so you know, we had to chat about it, and that was it, really. You know, so for Gita. The news from home was not good. They kind of ransacked the house. They took their, you know, their bank account information, books, anything that would uh, be a reminder of the fact that they're Baha'is. Like, he would have pictures of the shrines or Baha'i books, Baha'i prayer books. All of those things were taken away. And then they were called into prison and uh, abused. Her parents realised they can no longer stay in Iran. They are forced into a decision. That all happened in, in a matter of six months that they decided. So basically they had to sell the house, sell all their belongings, you know, gather their stuff together, put everything that they could possibly have in a lifetime of living in Iran in a couple of backpacks and leave Iran. Pakistan really wasn't in a position to accept anybody to stay in Pakistan and it wasn't recommended, you know. So it was really just a transitory period. I stayed in Islamabad. Uh, which is the capital city of Pakistan. And I stayed there for about two years. So there I was reading a brochure which was prepared by the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of Ireland, you know. So I was reading a brochure that things like, you know, the climate is always moderate. Now, I would have taken it that it's sunny, but (laughs) I didn't realise what that exactly meant. (laughs) The Irish government decided to take in 26 refugees. A message came from the Universal House of Justice and it said in it that how Irish culture, the Irish society, their strong faith, the way they view religion, the way they value spiritual qualities and all of that is so in tune with the Persian tradition and and, uh, Persian customs and that probably for any Iranian Baha'i, Ireland is best destination to go to. Myself and a few others decided, no, we take this advice. This is the best advice we're going to get. And we decided to actually apply that night for Ireland. And we received a message literally the same night that we were accepted. And my God, the joy, I cannot describe it. I was so happy. We were so happy to come here. On 3rd of December, 1985, I arrived in Ireland. Left on 2nd of December, arrived on 3rd of December. Gita was still in Pakistan, waiting to learn where she would be sent. 
In my family's case, it was very straightforward because my brother already was in Canada and the goal of the United Nations was to unite families. So I couldn't really go anywhere else but Canada. And I already had my brother and my aunt and some cousins there. Um, so it, is, it was straightforward. It was just a matter of waiting for your interview from the Canadian Embassy. Um, you applied by submitting your application. You were called for an interview. After the interview, they would inform you that you've been accepted, not accepted, and then um, basically you get your immigration papers and off you go. It will be 10 years before Sorab and Gita would hear of each other again. Cabin crew, please secure doors and cross-check. Thank you. We ended up carrying our blankets with us into the plane. And I remember coming out of the plane in Erlingus in Dublin, the stewardess asked me, why have you got a blanket on my hand? Are you going to stay in Ireland? I said, yes. And she said, why? <laughs> it was a quite an emotional time, really. We found it very difficult to control our emotions. And uh, there, was a, there was an awful lot of... Um, um, bursting into tears it's spontaneously, you know. We just, I suppose we almost couldn't believe how lucky we are, you know. It was a bit unsettling at the beginning because it was such a different culture and such a different community. Um, it was nice to see the family members and be reun- reunited with family. But um, it took me a while to settle down there. It took me a good few months and then start college and do studies and start working. I studied nursing in Canada, got my degree in nursing. So you find a rhythm, but the first few months was hard. By the 6th or 7th of December, I was in, uh, in Ennis. And of course, then Christmas was only around the corner, you know. So I was, I was living in a bed sit with three other guys. So I went to one of them and I said, look, what's going on? Where's the party? He, says, he said, oh, they're all in a pub. I said, I said where? He said, pub. I said, what's a pub? He said, you don't know a pub? I said, I don't know what pub is it. I'll have to show you, he says. So anyway, he took me to the pub, and of course we couldn't get in. It was so chock-a-block, you know. (laughs) So I I realized for the first time the way the Irish celebrate, you know. When I wanted to call Iran, I used to go and get 40, 50 cents. 50 pences, sorry. 40, 50 pences, and that was 20 pounds. And in those days, 20 pounds was a fairly decent chunk of money, you know? And then I used to go to a phone booth with my 40, 50 pences and then start. And by God, they were going in so fast. So it wasn't, we weren't getting an awful lot of time on the phone, but still, it was nice to, to be able to talk and hear them, you know? The first time I ever went to a rugby match. By God, the atmosphere. And who were Monster playing? They were playing Gloucester. They had to win by 27 points. Oh, I remember. Four tries. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Sorab had fully embraced life in Limerick. When I went to University of Limerick, I finished with the first class honours. It was more like a relief, though, thank God. <laughs> it wasn't so much for personal glory, but I felt I, I was obliged to deliver on this thing, you know. <laughs> so. I began to kind of, you know, feel that kind of a need in my life as well for a partner and for, for you know, forming a family. 
for me, I suppose it didn't work out in some ways. I mean, for example, when I look at some of my friends, I see that they were here with their families while I wasn't. Um, I remember that uh, me and three or four of my uh, pals, you know, all male, if I may say so, <laughs> we were we were one time talking about you know life and relationships and this type of things, and uh, and we decided to take a leaf out of the out of the way the Baha'i administrative system works, where you come up with. You know, that you, there's always a plan where you have a like four-year plan, five-year plan. And, you know, maybe marriage should be like that. Maybe we should have a five-year plan and, <laughs> and, that we will <laughs> and that we will set ourselves a goal and we start working on it. And I was, I was all the time arguing the point that, that it's, not, it's, not, it's not good to be all the time looking for that love at first sight. That if you don't happen to like someone on their first meeting that... You know, that one is a, is a gone, and then go to the next one. For the first time, Saurabh opened up to his friends about Gita, the girl he hadn't seen for 10 years and had never forgotten. Most of them were wondering that, and why didn't I do anything about it, you know? <laughs> so I was trying to explain, look, I was, I was, only, I was, a, I was a very young person in, in, a, in a very difficult situation in Pakistan in a, as a refugee, and... Uh, Certainly, romantic uh, adventures were kind of a, a no-no to some extent because you had so many other things to worry about. But one of my friends decided that that wasn't good enough, you know. And uh, he said that uh, you should really try to locate this lady and, and talk to her. And I said, you're talking about 10 years ago, so 10 years is a long time. She's probably married with a couple of kids at this stage, you know. <laughs> but he certainly felt that he needed to take further action. Unbeknownst to me, you know, he started uh, using the, the the World Wide Web, which was a quite a fledgling idea at the time. You know, <laughs> it wasn't as as pervasive as it is now. And um, started looking, and eventually located her somewhere in Canada, the far side of Canada, in Vancouver. Somebody was trying to introduce me to a man who lived in Seattle which is only two and a half hours away from Vancouver. And I absolutely flat out refused to meet him. I said, he lives in another city, two and a half hours away. How am I supposed to have a relationship with a man that lives two and a half hours away? He decided that to only, the only way he could contact her was to contact the National Assembly of the Baha'is of Canada and ask for her address. But of course, they wouldn't give her address to him because they didn't know who he was. They said, we're not giving somebody else's daughter's address to you. So he, he decided that, well, if I, if I write you a letter, would you send it to her? And they said, yeah, we will act as, you know, intermediary, you know, here. I got a, a letter from our National Special Assembly of the Baha'is of Canada, and they were forwarding a letter to me. And I started reading it, and there was this gentleman called Human that said, my name is Human, you don't know me, but we have a friend in common, and his name is Saurabh Nizamabad. And I had to think, and I said, Saurabh Nizamabad, okay. And I was reading the letter out loud to my mom, and she said, ah, that's the fellow that was in Pakistan, and he always used to clown around. I said, ah, okay. So I remembered who he was then at that stage, and he said that he was turning, Saurabh was turning 30 that year. And he was trying to surprise him by putting him in touch with one of his old friends, me. So on my, on my, on my, on my birthday, actually, he also planned a little surprise party for me. And when I said to him that 
this is the worst thing you've ever done. He said, oh, no, I have done something worse. I said, no, there's nothing you could have done that's worse than this. I, I was a bit suspicious when I saw his name on the, on the paper, of course, you know. But I just thought, you know, I don't really, I've never been in touch with Saurabh over the last 10 years. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to call him because I don't really know him uh, anymore. And I said, okay, I can send him an email. Actually, I, I forwarded the email to Human. And Human got back in touch with me saying, oh, he doesn't know I'm doing this, so I can't give you I can't give him the email, so you have to email himself, but his email is not working, so can you call him or can you fax him? I said, well, okay, I'm not going to call him. (laughs) We established that. So I faxed him the letter, the same email. I had written two uh, sentences for him that, you know, I've heard that you're turning 30 and your friend, um, you have a very resourceful friend, I think I said. And uh, so wish them happy birthday. And then, of course, when the when the new year came and I went back to work, there was a fax waiting for me from from Gita saying happy birthday. So, and then uh, I was <laughs> I have to say I was surprised, you know. And uh, when we started, uh, I started replying back to her, and we started sort of you know sending emails to each other. And I suppose you could almost say that we were internet dating well before its time, you know. <laughs> It was very early on, like and after emailing a few t- a few months, that uh, he actually suggested, so would we take this further? And I remember emailing him back with one word. I said, how? Like two different continents. How do you do that? Yeah, it was March, actually, because it was Gita's birthday. Um, I sent her flowers and things like that, you know, for her birthday. And after she got the flowers, I, I suggested that maybe we can take this further. So really, it was only a couple of months after... We got serious, for want of a better word, that, that I went over. I was nervous. I was very nervous because I didn't... Uh, I think you had sent me a picture of yourself over the computer. I think you had emailed me a picture or faxed me a picture and it was very distorted so I really didn't have a clue what he looked like (laughs) (laughs) that was me it wasn't distorted at all (laughs) well (laughs) so but I do remember he came out and he had you had your suit on didn't you did I he had travelled all this way with a suit on yeah that's not an easy thing to do it's a very long trip that was Um, for your dad was it for my yeah, dad? Yeah, to impress him, because I know Persian tradition. I said, yeah, he had it would his, be nice for me to arrive proper. in a suit. <laughs> <laughs> he looked very proper. I was pleasantly surprised that I rec- did not recognize him. I do remember the relief that, oh, this is him. I know him now. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Gita and her parents had decided that, given that this is a kind of a very ambitious project that has a huge <laughs> chance of failure let's not tell anybody in case we have to go back and then tell everybody no it's cancelled so <laughs> the first visit went very well <laughs> like I said I knew I knew I obviously had deep feelings for him when he was leaving and I was crying so that was it for me yeah we kept calling each other and we continued emailing and uh, then I decided um, that I might go and visit Ireland at that stage and see. So I never asked him to move to Canada, actually. <laughs> so that's why I had to come and see if I could live here. The first day or the second day I was here, 
He got a phone call from his family and his father, his father passed away. But they were just so nice, his family, and they were all grateful for the fact that I had been here with him and he wasn't on his own. So we got through it, he got through it. It was very difficult because he hadn't seen his father since he left Iran. It was a sad occasion. But it was, to some extent, as, you know, I was happy because my father was uh, suffering from uh, Parkinson's disease. So it, was, it wasn't a great start to her visit here, but as I said, it certainly created a bond between us that probably wouldn't have been there otherwise, you know. So, again, you sometimes wonder about the wisdom of certain things happening at certain times. But uh, I think we were in Jasmine Palace for dinner, and that's when he proposed, and he was panicking at that stage, I think. He was very nervous. I was definitely a massive novice, you know, and... And I was flying by the seat of my pants. It's as simple as that, you know. We were having a conversation that, as I said, maybe in the case of a, a you know, a, you know, a boy and a girl might have been a little bit awkward, you know. And I remember saying something like, you know, why don't you marry me? And then it's not awkward anymore to talk about it, <laughs> something like that. And once I said that, I realized, okay. I'm after proposing, you know, <laughs> this is because uh, it was certainly, you know, it wasn't planned as such, you know, no, I didn't go on one knee, didn't have a ring with me or anything like that, so. It was a question that didn't need an answer as far as I was concerned, you know, I knew at that stage that I would spend the rest of my life with him. Oh, I play football on that school team, no, you're right. Life is great, life is wonderful here, I have two beautiful children. Uh, 13 and 9. Okay. Pay attention to the capital letter now. Of teacher gi- us gives homework our lots. R. So okay. R is the first word R because is the first it has one. a capital. Okay. What's next? R. From the moment that Saurabh got my communication, the first email that he got from me, to the day we got married was one year. We got, he got my text on 4th of January when he went back to work when we got married 4th of January the next day, next year. Yeah, I was just thinking, that actually, yeah, I'll throw this out. The mint is, is, is and it's, it's, to be honest with you, you know the way how dangerous it is, because it, if it gets onto any piece of land now, it becomes like a weed. You just take it out of the pot yeah. and just put it um, behind the fence. Yeah, I'll put it, I'll feed it to the cows, you know. No, if you just put it where the bushes are, they can it, grow I did that. It didn't work. I did that last year. But as a whole pot? Just take it out the pot. I'll try it, but I tried. I think I did it last year, it didn't work. I prefer to have mint instead of mint. Okay.